This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we talk about big issues and news of the day and look at its relevance to philanthropy and the work of civil society. Uh, I'm your host, Rod Davis. This is episode 32. Uh, And good news for all of you out there who had to endure me talking about the civil society strategy on my own last time. This time we're back on the interviews. Um, And so this week uh, I've been talking to Chris Willis-Pickup. Now, Chris is a partner at Taylor Vintner's um, law firm in Cambridge um, and an expert uh, particularly in in charity law. Um, And he was formerly head of litigation for the Charity Commission uh, for England and Wales, the the regulator for charities here here in uh, that part of the UK. Um, So we had a a good wide ranging chat kind of focusing on charity law as a starting point, but then going on to to talk about um, all kinds of issues. So uh, how charity law works in practice, what some of the kind of big theoretical issues are around how you define charities. how regulation works, what the role of a regulator is, kind of what some of the, the challenges regulators for, for charities face. Um, and then also talking quite a bit about technology and digital transformation, which is something Chris is very interested in and I'm obviously also very interested in. Uh, and also the kind of the crossover between that and regulation in terms of the potential for charity reg tech, um, which was really interesting. And so I hope you enjoy the chat. Um, We'll go straight into it now and then I'll be back at the end of the podcast to do a little bit of housekeeping. So enjoy. Okay, great. So I'm here with Chris Willis Pickup. Hi, Chris. Hello there. Um, Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Um, I've given you a bit of an intro already, but maybe if you just want to say a bit in your own words about kind of your background and where you fit into you know the whole picture of charity and philanthropy. Thanks very much, Rodri. So my name's Chris Willis-Pickup, and until three months ago, I was working at the Charity Commission as one of their legal team. Um, I, I trained as a commercial lawyer originally, but um, I got a little bit bored of that and of the um, profit motive that drove all of that work, and I was looking for something with a little bit more social impact. That led me to look at the Charity Commission, and I've had a very enjoyable five years or so doing a range of different things for different bits of the Charity Commission. Um, and for various reasons, that happy time has come to an end. I made a positive decision to move on and work with a ro- wider range of people, and I'm now based in Cambridge. Uh, at a fairly small law firm called Taylor Vinters, um, but a small one that's given me a a pretty open book, really, to go out and rethink the way that legal services are offered to charities and social ventures. And I hope to do something slightly different and hopefully interesting for charities, not just in Cambridge, but around, around the whole of the country. And what, I mean, both in terms of your time at the commission and now that you're back in sort of the semi-commercial uh, sphere, but focusing on charities, what what kinds of uh, activities and, and advice does it, you know, does it normally entail? What does a sort of standard workload look like for you? Sure. So 
I suppose it's, there's a whole life cycle of, of charities. And of course, different charities are at different points on that life cycle. So there's there's quite a lot of work in setting a charity up. Um, some of that is is fairly basic, maybe setting a company up, um, perhaps getting employment contracts in place if you want to have some staff um, and thinking about some of the ways you might protect your relationships with funders, with um, beneficiaries and, and with some other service providers as well. So there's, there's, a, if you like, there's a package of stuff to set up a charity. And there's also then, of course, a regulatory angle to that, which is that, that key question, are you actually a charity? Will the Charity Commission register you and give you a number that you can use for gift aid applications and, and also with funders? Um, and so the, the more technical bit comes in when you're starting to look at um, what the charity is set up to do and whether that counts as charity um, as a charity under English law. So I suppose that's the beginning of the life cycle. And then there are lots of day-to-day -day things that needs that charities have. And much of my work at the moment is with perhaps slightly larger charities. So ones that typically do have staff and do have um, some sort of commercial arrangements in place. Um, and they just need the sort of legal advice that many organizations need really, but with that charity twist to it, because um, as I'm sure you know, Rodri, that trustees of a charity, those who are ultimately responsible for it, do have this range of duties and responsibilities under charity law. And they're a little bit different from the position of a, a classic company director or a manager of a business. But, but from what you're saying, there's quite a large body of the sort of practical legal advice that a charity will want that's, that's very similar to what any uh, kind of organisation or, or uh, organisation with a governance structure operating, you know, trading arms and whatever might need. But then there's a kind of, there's a, there's either a twist to that advice that makes it more germane for charities or there's a kind of kernel of stuff that is very specific around charity law. I mean, how, how much of what you do is kind of quite purely around charity law as opposed to a kind of hybrid of, of other things? So I suppose um, maybe it's the, the best way to illustrate that, I think, is the thing about the, the team I, I work with here. There's two of us in our core charity team. So we're the ones who do the really, I suppose, the more technical charity law, the dealing with the regulators, answering some of those more technical questions. But then the, the people who work for charities at, at this firm anyway, is a group of about 25 or 30 people. So that, that sort of gives you a slight sense of um, you know, quite how how little of the work really does require specialist charity knowledge but i think we'll say so maybe it's a, you know five five to ten percent probably because those people are doing some other things too um but i guess if you don't get that five to ten percent right you, you can you can end up with some some problems so a very a very simple example if a charity is selling some some property it, it doesn't has a building it doesn't need anymore and it wants to sell it if that's a commercial business and there's a fairly standard way of selling selling property you can do that you don't need permission from anyone before you do that usually um, if you're a charity you can't do that you need either permission from the charity commission or you need to get a special type of surveyors report under the charity rules and i, I guess if you walk into um, any sort of conveyance around the country and ask them to sell a property and they don't know that then you you won't actually be able to sell that property, and when you try and register the sale at the land registry, that they'll reject it, and that's one of those little quirks of charity law that um, I guess people at the commission know about, and people who work with charities regularly know about, but actually you're perhaps your more average um, law firm without charity specialists wouldn't wouldn't necessarily get that right. So that's partly really my role here is to make sure that the, that charities kind of do get that specialist five five to ten percent where they need it.
Yeah, I guess it feels a lot like what I see in you know in the banking world or finance, where obviously charities often have investment needs or banking needs, and they're largely very similar to other organisations of similar size. But there's often just that little bit where it helps for somebody to to have a sort of charity specific perspective on it. Um, I just want to, I mean, obviously, I, I'm kind of interested in things from from a policy angle, that being my background. And there's often a crossover with with law and you know, charity law. But I guess where you tend to get that crossover is usually where things go wrong, or whether it's a, an unusual case that sort of tests the, the limits of, of case law and the kind of day to day. You mentioned before around the, the whole question of kind of what does or doesn't count as, as a purpose. And one of the things I'm uh, endlessly fascinated of is where where that boundary is drawn between acceptable charitable purposes or not. Um, and I guess I don't know if you've had any experience of those cases that quite regularly crop up at the margins where this this stuff is come kind of comes to public attention. I'm thinking of things like um, the charitable status of public schools or some of the kind of um, think tanks with educational purposes. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, my my last role at the charity commission was as head of litigation, so. Um, I would say about half of the the cases that went to the charity tribunal, the specialist specialist tribunal that reviews charity commission decisions, were cases about registration of charities. And one of the key questions those cases are looking at is, is is this set of purposes charitable under under English law? So I can give out a, a few examples um, that went went different ways in the end. Um, one of them, Human Dignity Trust, where the Charity Commission's decision was overturned by the tribunal, was about the promotion of human rights um, and whether working in other countries to challenge laws that banned homosexuality counted as a charitable purpose. And I think this is a it's an interesting example because I don't think anyone in the courtroom was saying this is not a good thing to be doing. Um, there was no doubt within the commission that this is an, a very valuable and indeed very challenging uh, and important service and, and role that the charity was performing. The question was, did it fit into what the Act of Parliament says about what's a charity? And I think the the commission took, a, would say, maybe a cautious approach and didn't didn't push the law to extend it. Um, but the tribunal did. And it, that's why it overruled the charity commission and why there is a new definition of advancing human rights for for charitable purposes that, that flowed out of that case. And I give, I'll give you another example of one that went the other way, um, target shooting. So the the activity of, of going to a shooting club and, and shooting at targets. Um, the commission decided that an organisation that was doing that did not count as as a, as a sport, basically, for charity purposes, because there's a there's a particular legal definition of sport to do with physical and mental um, benefits and well-being, and there the charity tribunal had to had to look at really quite a medical question actually about what what exactly happens when you are lying down or standing up and shooting at targets. What does the expert evidence say about the benefits of that, and then how does that fit with the legal framework? And in that case, the charity tribunal looked at the expert evidence and agreed with the commission and said, "This, this is all. This is all a good activity to be doing. We're not. No one's disputing. It's it's it, it's a, an enjoyable and positive thing that people are doing. I don't think there was that argument in the tribunal, but it isn't something that counts as a charity. Uh, and so that that organisation is not a charity. It could be a, a sports club, a different type of organisation, but it but it's not a charity. 
Mm. That's fascinating that the the question of what constitutes a sport was tested in court because I know that's a certainly an argument I've had many times in the past <laughs> yes, with people indeed. saying, you know, Formula One's not a sport, darts isn't a sport, all these kinds of things. Very much depends on your point of view. Um, I guess more seriously on on the the first case that you brought up there, that's that's interesting about um, whether or not uh, specific kind of attempts to uh, push for for particular types of human rights constitutes um, a charitable purpose. And maybe it's worth spelling out for people listening um, the distinction there between a charity having a political purpose or a purpose that is seen as political and engaging in political activity as a way of furthering an acceptable charitable purpose because i think it might be it's probably confusing for a lot of people who feel like they see charities out there all the time engaging in various kinds of kind of advocacy and campaigning but but maybe if you could just say a bit about what yeah. that kind of fundamental distinction is. Yeah, it is. It is one of those things that is looks good on paper, and you you know you can see when you look at the theory behind it. Oh, okay, yeah, I can I can I can just about get my head around that. But of course, when you are looking at what a charity is actually doing, that distinction gets gets blurred very quickly, uh, and there's certainly a risk that it looks an awful lot like um, you know, people are saying, no, you can't do that that type of campaigning but yes you can do this type of campaigning and it's it's certainly something that i know the charity commission is is very wary of it wants to be absolutely even-handed um and particularly at sensitive periods like um elections and referendum campaigns um, and it does it does tend to get flack i think from both sides or all sides of the political spectrum which is probably a sign it, it's not doing too badly in being even-handed but yeah just to go back to that that point of principle you're, you're right so uh, if an organization is set up for a political purpose, so to ch- to change the law, for example, um, that in itself won't be a charity. You can't that can't be the pu- the purpose of the organization. Uh, what it can do, what charity can do, is engage in campaigning and political activity, as long as it furthers a charitable purpose. So, to give a couple of examples, if you're a charity set up for conservation and heritage purposes, that's a charitable purpose, that can be fine. Um, What you can then do is campaign to protect a listed building, for example. And that can include going as far as supporting legal appeals against local authority um, decisions about listed buildings, or you could be trying to persuade local councillors to adopt a different conservation policy. all All things that are really quite political, but because they're there to further the charities charitable purpose that that's all fine and then another example um, would be housing policy and homelessness if you're a charity that's set up to um, prevent homelessness that that should be charitable that's that's a charitable purpose that's that's not a problem you can then campaign um, for the government to change its policy so that homeless people are better supported and again you could go to local authorities and challenge individual decisions that they've made um, to give accommodation or not to give accommodation to someone and campaign for local level policies to change too all things that are quite political in nature but they're okay because they are furthering the overall charitable purpose but i can as i say i can see how in practice it is it is all quite blurred though i would say that that there is lots of guidance out there including from the charity commission so um it can be quite long but if you really do need to get to the bottom of this um you know you don't need to come and speak to me you can read the charity commission's cc9 guidance and um have a think about it yourself no i'd agree it is it is good guidance i mean i guess on that that whole thing about uh, whether or not political purposes are acceptable um i mean obviously uh, people listening to the podcast and and you'll be aware that 
sort of the historical quirks are, are something I particularly like, and I, I just think it's worth flagging up that actually that interpretation itself might be based fundamentally on a on a mistake from from one court case back in 1918 that then obviously has, has subsequently led to a very large body of case law but actually that fundamental idea that political purposes are not acceptable for for an, for an endowed charitable institution doesn't rest on anything extremely firm um but it's kind of by the by really as i say because uh, subsequently that's become kind of established through case law um, I mean, just p- picking up um, or going off on a tangent slightly on that historical um, uh, idea, there, there's also kind of long running issues that are kind of, I think, pretty fundamental to, to philanthropy that, that occasionally crop up through the law courts. And I just wanted to flag up one one example I know we've both kind of discussed in, in uh, preparing for this program, and that's around the, the National Fund. Um, so I don't know if you want to explain just kind of a bit about the background of, of what the case is um, for people listening. Sure. So I think this is a this is an organisation that set up, and you may know the dates better than, than me, Rodri. Sometime in the 20s, I think, wasn't it? 20s, yes, yeah. I think that's right. And with the laudable aim of paying off the national debt. In full. Um, in full. <laughs> <laughs> and I say laudable and also am, ambitious. Um and it, it, you know, it, slightly different times then, but a, a genuine, what seems genuine ambition to raise enough private money to, you know, put the put the country back on its feet, pay off the national debt, and then we, you know, wipe the slate clean and and start again. Um, now, you know, the, the way things have turned out, turned out the national fund is unfortunately somewhat short of. Uh, the the massive national debt that that we currently have i think it, i think the assets are something like 400 million i think you know you'd need quite a few more zeros to be getting close to the uh, the national debt figures now and it it seems that that charity is unlikely ever to achieve its purpose valid char- charitable purpose of paying off the national debt and so the question is should it just carry on trying and hope that one day you know, maybe, maybe one of one of your your favourite topics, Rodri. Someone will invent the the new blockchain yeah. <laughs> use that will save the world, and they will donate the proceeds to the national fund, and the, the UK's national debt will be wiped out overnight. Um, you know, should should the national fund keep going in the hope that that might happen, or you know, should other should people and some people somewhere intervene, take the four hundred million pounds and and put it to good use now? that's that's at the heart of what that case is about um and i think it's one of those i'd sort of raise it because the it it seems on the face of it almost an absurd story and most people's common sense reaction would be well of course we should free up the money now you know if it's been set up for a purpose that clearly is never going to be achieved yes 400 million is well short of the ability to pay off the national debt but that's still a significant sum of money and it could be doing good in the world now but i guess when and that is something, I mean, it's come to the fore recently because it's it's come back to political attention and this has been sort of raised as a, as questions in Parliament about what should be done with the National Fund. But from a legal point of view, the sort of fundamental principle of respecting the, the rights of donors when they establish an endowed structure, even if subsequently um those come to to reflect the needs of later times very poorly, is a hugely thorny issue. Absolutely, yeah, and I think um, I think it's right to be we're right to be wary about opening that Pandora's box. Um, and you know, who you know, who am I or who are you, who are you to say that you know, what what someone else wanted to give money to charity 
for is is not okay or can't can't be done or shouldn't be done and i think you know, the national fund might be a case where it's there's enough evidence that it's never going to happen that you know maybe maybe that money can be unlocked but as soon as you start down that slope you you can see lots of other situations where people might say well now that charity doesn't look very effective you know it's, it's it claims to be raising money to build a new school but it's only got 100 grand it's going to need a few million more you know they've, they've had 100 grand for five years um and and they they don't appear to have made any progress in the last year. Let's intervene, take that hundred thousand, and and give it give it to someone who can use it more effectively. And I think I'm not sure that's a, that's a situation that that we would be comfortable with within the charity sector. I think you know it's we are we are, it's part of the we're part of civil society. We're it's important to have democracy and vibrancy in the way in which people can give to causes that mean something to them. And I think ultimately if if there's too much intervention um, in trying to force charities to maybe make better use of their funds or take money away from one purpose and give them to another, ultimately you might just put people off from giving money to charity at all. And I think it it, it wouldn't take many ill-considered cases to actually have quite a chilling effect on um, giving to charity. And as you know, CAF's research shows very clearly, this is a very generous country and we have to be quite careful to preserve that and 400 million is a lot of money but it it's much less than the 22 billion that is given to charity every year in this country so i think um i, I think it's very i think it's quite sensible that a cautious approach is being taken to the national fund i i don't know what will happen next with it but i, I do i do suspect that a neutral determination that is a long way away from the political sphere is the right way to go yeah, I suspect so. I guess one interesting sort of uh, twist on that is, um, I think I've covered this on the podcast before at least once, but the the, the interesting fact, that whole question of the dead hand of the donor and uh, money being locked up in dormant trusts played a very big part in the original formation of the, of the Charity Commission because of the problem with parochial trusts in London, in Victorian London. Um, and I just wondered, sort of, from your experience at the Commission, how it saw its role in relation to questions of sort of obviously dormant trusts and what can be done with them or charities that are no longer functioning, but also around that wider question of, you know, where do you start to feel like the regulator has a role in questioning the efficiency of particular organisations that are perhaps kind of tying up money that could be used better elsewhere? Yeah, so I think. I think the commission feels feels it's quite an urgent issue for it actually. Um I think when you look at the the commission's statutory objectives, the, the overarching objectives it, it has in section 14 of the Charities Act 2011, one of them is to promote the efficient use of charitable funds and that's that's across the sector it's not you know not for within necessarily an individual charity and I think um particularly within the policy work of the commission I think the commission is is very keen to try and do that. And I suppose that that encompasses um, everything from you know, good good financial management and guidance to trustees and working with other bodies on standards, but also to the way it carries out its casework. And I, I think you see that probably at two or three different stages in the Commission's work with charities. And one of them is at the outset. So now when you when you apply to register a charity, you get quite a lot of challenge from the Commission about whether your plan is realistic. And you know, are you actually going to be achieve, able to achieve what you have set out to achieve? And that, that is something the commission is doing because it thinks it's the right thing to do. It thinks it furthers its objective. You know, it, it isn't something that is 
written in the Charities Act that says the Commission has to do that. It's it's something it's built into its processes to try and make sure that new charities set off on the right foot. So that's one one element. Um, another element that I, I know is a, a priority for the Commission is actually looking at charities who are on the register but effectively dormant. And the charity does have some powers to take charities off the register if they are not operating. That's the wording in the in the statute. And I, I know in my time in my time there, the Commission was increasingly using that power to, if you like, clean up the register. So it, it, we all know the, the overall numbers on the register, 168,000 registered charities, something like that. But you know, if, if there's a big chunk of those that aren't actually doing anything and you've got 10,000 more charities per year going on there, actually, who's who's taking them off? And that's the Commission's role. And I, I know that they have a, a quite a big programme to do that and have actually been getting some support from the Charity Tribunal. Unsurprisingly, there's been a few challenges to that that approach, but so far supported by the Charity Tribunal. So I think there's a sort of beginning and end of a, a charity being on the register. And then something we haven't quite quite touched on yet, but this power that the Commission has to approve changes to charity purposes. Um, and this is the see, pray doctrine, going back into sort of the old French um, wording, you know, a long, a long established power for the High Court, which the Charity Commission has as well due to due to the Acts of Parliament. And there actually the duty isn't on the Commission to make to make those changes. The duty is actually on the charity trustees. So there is a duty on charity trustees if they don't think their charity can fulfill its purpose anymore or its purposes need updating to go to the Commission and ask them to be changed. And I'm not sure how widely known known that is, but it, it certainly I I know it gave the Commission a useful lever when it was talking to some charities to say, you know, hang on, what what are you actually doing with this money are you going to be able to achieve this purpose or do you do you think you need to rethink it come up with a new plan now try and keep it as close as possible to the original donors wishes or the original charity's purposes and come up with something different that you think will fit the needs of society today and the commission was always very open-minded about that um, there's always a consultation process you need to make sure that stakeholders are sort of engaged and you know people go along with it partly so you don't tie it up in litigation, but also because that way you have a more effective and, and more valuable charity. So I, I thought the Commission was quite proactive when people came to it with those points, but I, I do wonder if there are charities out there who are holding off because they think the Charity Commission will be difficult. And actually, I would I would, I would would encourage charity trustees to remember that duty and look at whether they should be updating what their charity is set up to do. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I wasn't really aware of that. It becomes sort of more of a, a governance issue in a way than a straightforward legal issue. And I, I wonder how that relates to the situation with something like the National Fund, where I guess the, the longer the gap between the, the sort of operating life of the charity and the initial wishes of the donor and the problem being dealt with, the more the likelihood is that the the trustees of that organization are i mean i think in the case of the national fund they're essentially institutional trustees i think it's sort of uh, asset management uh, firm or a couple of them and i guess how proactive they are ever likely to be in in pushing for that that change of purpose um and and kind of whether that makes it difficult in some of those circumstances to for it to be led by trustees i guess Yes, and I, I suppose that type of organisation is is in quite a different a different situation where you know its its job is to accumulate and invest money. Um, from actually maybe some of the more frontline charities where 
actually keeping the lights on is the main day-to-day -day issue. And it is a bit harder to, you know, if you're so focused on how do we keep things going tomorrow, how do we keep helping our beneficiaries next week, it's quite hard to sit down and say, actually, let's, you know, let's download our governing document and have a little look at that purposes clause and see whether we're, you know, that, that really fits the times. So I can, you know, I can completely see why that is not a priority issue. Um, I suppose, it, it, as you say, it, it does become a governance issue at that point. Is it is it actually causing a problem day to day? Is it stopping the charity from accessing funds it might otherwise access? Or is it slightly skewing the way the charity operates so it's not as efficient as it should be? I suppose that can go on for a little while, but at some point you, you do need to take a step back and think, you know, where are we actually going as, a, as an organization? And sometimes when you have new trustees in, it's a good you know, first task for them to be given, you know, have a look at the governing documents and our purposes, see whether you think they're appropriate. You know, we've all been looking at them for, for several years, but a fresh pair of eyes can, can actually be what you need to, um, need as a prompt really to, to rethink things and, and try and improve for the future. Yeah. And, and I guess there's going to be some cases that are clear cut, but there, there's always going to be a lot of gray area. And again, it's one of those things where I'd worry that if, if anybody sort of, went in all guns blazing to try and solve this perceived problem actually there are a lot of cases where that fine balance between perceived efficiency here and now and the ability to kind of build up a longer term endowment actually there's quite a strong argument for focusing on the latter um and i guess this is you know where you end up having arguments about things like foundation payout which is where people feel as though the balance is shifted too far one way and actually there should be more of a compunction on endowed organizations to to spend here and now but you know that just illustrates that that gray area is extraordinarily complex it is and i think it you know it, it, it is one of the the strengths of ch of the charity governance structure and it, it can be a weakness clearly as well that charity trustees do have a great deal of discretion um in deciding what's right for their particular charity in its context and it, it, this is one of those areas that makes me think for all the for all the calls for different possibly different governance models you know, possibly remunerated trustees and, and quite what the right and if there are changes that should be made what those would be but actually there is there is still a huge value in having a an independent group of people who get together with nothing other than the charity's best interests in mind and and do look at these things objectively and i i don't there are occasionally calls on the charity commission to intervene, but the charity commission can't run 168,000 charities. And even when it looks at one or two of them with this question in mind, it, it will never know as much as the charity trustees who are living it you know, day to day, month to month for many years. So I think this is, it really does reinforce the value of trustee discretion here. Yeah. And I guess that the talk of, of governance and efficiency also reminds me that in between the two points we've already identified, the sort of in the life cycle, the birth and potentially at the end of a charity, there's also you know quite a big issue in the middle around the idea of whether you could get efficiency through mergers and collaboration. And you know, there's a lot of people who kind of argue quite strongly that there should be more mergers or even forced mergers in the charity sector. I mean, how have you had much experience of seeing organisations attempt to go through merger or actually go through it? And how easy or not have you have you found that to be uh yeah I've, I've actually seen it from i guess two perspectives one is that you know, i mentioned my training at the beginning the the law firm i trained with did spent a lot of its time doing large commercial mergers and acquisitions 
Um, and so I saw I know, probably dozens of those in my in my training and time there. And what was what was really obvious is that the drivers for those um, type of transactions are almost entirely absent in the charity sector. So the I guess the need to create shareholder value, um, if, if you can kind of kind of put it that way, or trying to grow into overseas markets um, in, in different countries, or to an extent some of the some of the tie-ups to mitigate risks don't quite exist in the in the charity sector so i'm not sure that all the same incentives are there and then the people who are actually doing that stuff and most of those type of deals are not brought to well it's not it's not you know it's not people in a company think, sitting there thinking i wonder who we should merge merge with today there is an an army of corporate finance people out there crunching numbers in excel spreadsheets who come up with these ideas and then go and sell them to companies and i as far as i can as far as i know that's not happening in the charity sector so i think the absence of of people pushing them um, in in that kind of detailed way, and the absence of these sort of financial incentives for everyone involved, does make it quite a quite a different setup in the in the charity sector. And so I think in a way the the language of kind of mergers and acquisitions, which you know, is is very much drawn from the corporate sector, is is a little bit off putting really because they're quite different things. I I much prefer collaboration, um, and actually I've I've really enjoyed reading the NPC's report on, I think, mission and merger and all of the different collaboration models there are and the cultural points at play. And I think, but I think it does take a, it does take a bold charity management team to say that you know, our mission will be better served if we, our organization merged with that organization. But, you know, all of us will, will go. You know, we only need one finance director. We only need one chief executive. You know, one of the reasons why this will all be more efficient is because half of us won't have jobs anymore. Now, actually, to to take that type of um, jump and go through the what, what can be quite a complicated and technical process to merge, and know that the end point is that you you won't have a job anymore. You know, it, it's wonderful if people can do that for the greater good as and as the best way of achieving their charity's purpose. But I, I also completely understand why it doesn't happen very often. It, it does take quite a quite a particular set of circumstances to to push people to take that take that jump. No, I agree. It's it's sort of yeah. It looks it looks like a level of altruism that's uh, almost above and beyond even for people working, you know, in a, in a sector motivated by purpose. But um. Um, I just just wanted to touch on something else as well that, that kind of relates to questions of, of efficiency and, and sort of uh, I know it's uh, become a big part of your work is just around the role of kind of technology and digital transformation because um, obviously one of the things that, that can help charities to achieve sometimes is is sort of greater efficiency either in terms of their own work or um, across multiple charities in terms of uh, making kind of back office operations more more efficient. I mean, what what are you, are you sort of seeing in the work that you're doing now in terms of what, where there's interest from charities? Yeah, I think it, I think this this whole area of digital digital transformation is is fascinating, and it it is a huge opportunity for charities. Um, it's actually a much easier conversation to have than the collaboration one because you're not you're not at least at least not overtly saying to people, okay, let's you know put these organisations together and and. Um, you might need you might lose some staff. What, what you're actually you know what you're saying to people is you can you can move from you know, some of the numbers you know, I've seen are kind of quite astounding. You know you can move from supporting ten thousand people, um, perhaps ten thousand people with a particular disability, to having to reaching 
one, two million people around the country by using a new digital product or service and, and developing that. And you can do it even more cheaply than you can to have an impact on the 10,000 people. And I think, you know, it is it is quite easy to overpromise in that in this area, but there are also some amazing examples of really huge impact um, for beneficiaries, and the mission is ultimately being achieved a lot more effectively and a lot more efficiently through using digital tools. Um, I mean, I think there there are lots of people who have identified, I think, some of the skills gaps and some of the cultural challenges of. Um, adopting digital, even call it that, and, and even the questions of you know, what does that even mean? Um, and so you, know, you and I have talked before about the charity digital code um, that's currently in draft and out for consultation. And I, I think that hopefully will remove some of the barriers and just simplify the, the, the entry process for charities into this world. And there's been lots of great work for small charities as well who can absolutely do this. Um, I mean, the angle I'm, I'm coming at some of this from is um it's partly about being realistic about how you actually achieve these things because i think um it's wonderful to have a vision it's great and it's certainly great to have a digital strategy and it's brilliant to, to create an, an amazing service or product that you can roll out and have a real impact for people i think there is sometimes in that in that kind of environment where these these products and services are created often a very agile environment it can be quite hard to pause maybe take stock um maybe make sure some of the legal side is taken care of um and the most common things that, that i certainly see one of them is um contracting so we had a quick chat about this when data is clearly a big big feature of this lots of these innovations are driven by big data but actually at a very basic level if you know if you are putting something into cloud storage what do the terms and conditions look like for that cloud storage provider. Once you put it in there, do you still own that content anymore? Is there anything to stop the cloud storage provider taking it, selling it to someone else, or mining that data for advertising? And where does that leave you as a charity if that's all your donors or that's all your beneficiaries? And it includes perhaps includes some sensitive personal data, but also that it's kind of a scandal waiting to happen. And I think there are, it's very easy to think you just sign up, you know, their standard terms and conditions actually for some of these digital services you really do need to go down something slightly more bespoke to protect you as a charity so that's one area the other area that's uh, maybe a little bit less obvious is people and i think that's where we see information um projects often start these sort of projects often seem to start in the marketing and fundraising teams where you have a lot of digital marketing digital fundraising and over time you might move over to operational service delivery sometimes some of the back office stuff but if you if you actually see this sort of stuff through, it can it can actually bring about quite a big cultural change to the whole organisation, um, where people are expected to work in quite different ways. And for some people, that will be hugely energising uh, and encouraging. And for others, it it really won't be. Um, and I think it's quite easy for the evangelists to slightly overlook the people who are, who are left behind and that that does bring in some sort of sometimes people issues and sometimes some contested exits uh, and sometimes the policy and procedures aren't really up to date and so actually didn't necessarily expect it at the beginning but lots of our work on digital projects actually involve quite a lot of employment law advice and handling as well. 
Now that's really interesting because I guess yeah, you've, it's easy sometimes to get carried away with the potential for um, you know uh, digital and, and new technology to to deliver amazing benefits and kind of change the way organisations work. But I mean, it's I suppose it doesn't have to be the case, but it's often the case that that efficiency comes at some degree of human cost in the often you know often you're doing things much more cost effectively but that's because you need fewer people in order to do that and i suppose that does have ramifications in terms of things like employment law as you say um well just wanted to come on as well actually i've given your background obviously having worked on the you know for for quite a while um in the the field of regulation it, it one of the areas that i think is really interesting around the application of new technology that I don't think has quite filtered into the charity world or at least not that I'm very aware of is, is around the kind of reg tech so obviously for anybody who doesn't know that sort of regulatory tech to go along with uh, fintech or financial tech <laughs> to make to make regulations sound really uh, exciting and, and uh, jazzy but um but I just sort of wondered whether you'd, you'd seen or kind of aware of of any thinking or experiments trying to kind of apply new technology to make regulation either more effective or more efficient um, in the future because it strikes me it's an area kind of ripe for for disruption yeah absolutely and there's there was quite a lot of activity in the charity mission around digital transformation and um, some of the technology that could go with that Um, i don't think they were buying in any existing models i think it was genuinely a a sort of bottom up what are the, what are the user needs here and i think actually it's something we've talked about if you, if you go back to the sort of slightly sterile debate about whether the charity commission is a friend or a foe of the charity sector and i think well speak, i won't speak for you but i certainly would say neither of them um one of the first things the commission's current ceo helen stevenson said when she came in is that she also rejected that those two labels and said that the commission should be thinking about charities as largely customers um, to whom the commission provides a service and of course there will be some where the commission has to go into kind of if you like regulator mode and hold to account those that misbehave but actually for a lot of people you you know you go on the charity charity commission website and you have a particular task you want to fulfill you want to change the name of a trustee or equally you want to register a charity and so and I don't know how much people have noticed this yet. There's been a lot more going on within the commission than perhaps has kind of broken out yet. But the commission has been totally rethinking the way its services for users, customers look. And it something that didn't happen when I was started five years ago there. There are people who work on user experience who are employed by the Charity Commission and spend all their time going and talking to charities about how the website works, how to make the, the web forms easier and that's the sort of stuff you know you might you might associate more with the way insurance companies might work. You don't necessarily think of a of a charity regulator as having user experience people. And there's a head of digital at the charity commission that there wasn't when I when I started. And I think people will see actually over the summer the commission's been recently promoting there is a completely new um, user or way for charities to update their details at the charity commission and a kind of new page i think for each charity so you can go in and it's almost like a kind of customer account and that's quite a different model to the one that was there five years ago um and behind that um there is some quite interesting technology that i know has been explored so some of the most standard things that people do at the charity commission um so updating governing documents and lodging those with the charity commission or changing a name things like that the commission has been looking at how to automate some of that 
So you are moving from you know, a, a case officer who is sat with you know, a series of pa pile of paper sometimes or, or pile of emails more recently um, and a copy of the Charities Act and the Commission's internal guidance and trying to work out how they all apply to each other and whether to say yes or no. Well, the Commission has built a system that now does that in an automated way, certainly for low-risk cases. Uh, and I think one of the one of the ways the charity sector will notice this most is they, as you, as I'm sure you're aware, Rodri, the commission is much hungrier for data than it was a few years ago, um, and part of that's through the annual report um, and annual return processes. Uh, part of it's just the way that data is captured and and put into a machine readable form, and part of it is some of the research reports the commission has put out there. But what all of that is doing kind of behind the scenes is helping the commission to regulate more efficiently. It's giving a data set that the commission can then use to improve its its risk targeting um, and to improve the way it, it alerts, for example, a subset of charities when it sees an issue. So I think there was an awful lot going on the, behind the scenes when I was there. And I think some of it's just starting to come into the public domain. So I would say that um, actually you know, there might be some who criticize the commissioners being quite a venerable institution, there's some really innovative stuff going on there. And I hope that over the next year or two, we all get to see it, it work out. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I mean, certainly around that, you know, what you're saying there about using automation um, to try and address some of the lower risk cases, that seem, seems to me like exactly the way in which automation can play out most positively in the short term, which is where you, you use it to automate precisely those things that it's it's almost a waste of a person's time to do and then you can kind of focus the the human staff members time on those cases that are more difficult or more complex and get passed on by the system so it's kind of it's not a replacement of human beings by automated systems it's a kind of augmentation of their yeah. abilities yeah that's exactly it. and that's exactly how it works it will you know, it throws out cases that are you know hit various triggers mm. um and also a random selection so you can't kind of game the system yeah um and a, and a person looks at those and makes a decision and you know, the idea is that all of that means the decisions come back to people much more quickly there's no there's no discussion of you know reducing headcount from any of this mm. the, the whole idea is to free up people to um, deal with the commission's kind of ever-increasing regulatory burden yeah, absolutely. I remember, I can't remember what the figures were, but I did see them somewhere about the the amount of time and cost that's taken up at the commission, as it is, I think, with all regulators, simply in kind of sending documents back to people that have been incorrectly filled in, you know, so so actually that very low hanging fruit at the, the first instance, particularly when people are registering a charity, actually, you can see how a fairly simple degree of automation would you know, save a huge amount of time and cost, both for the regulator and for the people uh, you know, trying to to apply to register charity. So I think that's really interesting. Um, and just on that, yeah, it's, it, on that question of data, I mean, there's all you know, there's a lot more that we could say say about data. And certainly, I um, had Rachel Rank from Three Sixty Giving on the podcast a few weeks back, um, and we were, you know, she, they're obviously kind of working around the the field of open data in the charity sector and trying to kind of free up data on grants and and funding particularly but we were discussing there that it seems like the the commission is an obvious body that has a big role to play in kind of driving data standards across the sector and and the kind of culture of making data more usable and available so i think you know it's great to to hear that they are focusing on that yeah, I think there's a big, that's a big project about transparency, and one of the other 
drivers. You know, yes, I said the Commission is hungry for data itself to, to help it regulate more effectively. Now, the other big driver for putting more information in annual returns is to be for charities to be more transparent. And this goes back to you know, a, a topic that could probably be a whole other podcast at least and in trust in the sector. I think the Commission does strongly believe that transparency is an important way of rebuilding or building trust um, and that getting data out through the Charity Commission, you know, seen as a sort of honest broker here and putting more, a sort of richer data set on the Charity Commission website, on the register, is is a way of, of helping charities rebuild trust. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting, there's quite a lot that could be done with Charity Commission data. And I think, um, you know, some people clearly know, but you, you can get a huge amount of data just downloaded from the Charity Commission. You can download the whole Charity Commission register if you want in, in an Excel file and, and have a look through it and see who all the charities are. Um, and you can, there, are, there are sort of more technical feeds that developers can build into other, other systems if they want. And I, I think I know, I know there are some good examples of um, lots of good tech in the charity sector about impact measurement and and so on but the, if you want the core data of who are the registered charities in the uk it's very easy to get that from the commission under open government licensing um but you can't you can't find it very easily on the home page you have to search for it specifically yeah but you know baby steps i'm sure as you say in the, the next year or two hopefully that that will um bear fruit um i'm aware we're in danger of, of running long so there's just a, a couple of questions I, I wanted to try and get boxed off and then i'll the yeah, the remainder of the list i'll have to park for a future episode when i'll drag you back on to talk more about this <laughs> sure. stuff but, um one one was just um i know it's something we've we've talked about before and you're kind of do are aware of in your work i just wanted to, if, to say something briefly about it is a totally different aspect of the relationship between law and, and charity but that's around the role of lawyers and kind of legal professionals in being advocates for the idea of charitable giving to their clients because i mean they're ob- a lot of the time they are there as a sort of first point of contact and they will be the first time that a client is having a conversation about uh, legacy planning or wealth planning or tax planning or what to do and it's natural often at that point for the idea of giving some money away to to come up so kind of what do you think the responsibility is on the legal industry to kind of make sure it knows what to do in that circumstance and and have you seen some kind of good practice being developed there yeah so i think it's um i think it's quite a a challenging thing for for lawyers to kind of get right really because it we've got this sort of bundle of professional duties um and you know one of our key ones is to act in the best interests of our our client um and the, the people is, as you as you say that it's quite common for a what typically be called a private client lawyer um to sit down with someone who is thinking about their assets and their will um and often the conversation is is driven by well how do we save as much tax as possible how do we make sure that the money goes to the people that you want it to go to um but i i do wonder um how often that conversation turns to philanthropy it doesn't feel like the kind of conversation that will then be saying well okay so you you've managed to avoid giving anything in in tax or, or as, as much as possible but nonetheless have you you know have you thought about giving a, a big chunk of this to a charity instead um and it i agree that i think it's absolutely a conversation that should happen because i think lawyers are helpfully in the position of usually a trusted advisor it's a conversation that's happening about assets and what happens 
after people die. And that's not an easy conversation to start. Um, and gifts in wills are a hugely valuable source for many charities. And indeed, there's lots of free will writing services um, that, that link to, to charities. And it's, it's a really, legacies are a really important area of, or a really important source of funds. Um, but actually, when, when a lawyer is sat down doing a will, it's often going to be a higher value one. Um, and we have a private client team here. And one of the, some of the first people I've been speaking to here is about you know, what should we be saying to those to those clients? Um, and there are lots of new ways of giving, I would say, and both both in in wills, but also during during lifetimes. And I know you know all about this with the things like the effective altruism movement um, and founders pledge, um, something that is of great interest to the tech entrepreneurs that my firm works quite a lot with you know the idea that you make a pledge when you found a new startup that if you make lots of money out of it you'll give a percentage of that to charity you know, that's that's a, again a really great time to have that conversation to encourage people towards philanthropy and when you have things like the effective altruism movement or impact more some better sort of impact measurement um, there is a, a generation of people who are more attractive by that those numbers based impact measurement who will think actually you know i i may not have given to a more traditional charity where I don't really quite understand what's happening with it. But if I can see a number or if I can give on a, a blockchain and track the impact down to the individual person who gets the benefit at the end of it, actually, I will give some of my money away. Um, so I, I think as lawyers, we also have a role to play in getting ourselves informed about all of these different options. And I think there is a bit of a gap often between the people who have conversations with um, individuals about their wills or about their tech startups and the people, you know, those of us who work directly in the charity sector and who know and know what the philanthropic options might be. And actually, as well as being out and about talking to clients, one of the main things I've, I've spent my time doing is talking to my colleagues here and saying, are you thinking about this? Does your checklist of what to go through with a client with their will include philanthropy? Because if it doesn't, it should do. And here are some options that will feel very different to different people and some some of your people will want the more traditional let's set up a foundation and others will say actually i'd like to be part of an effective altruist group that is also my hobby so i think it's a it's a key question but it does it it, it will take some effort from lawyers on you know, both the charity side and the uh, private client side to get together and and do some put some effort into it no, I agree, and I guess the the question of how you achieve that in in practice is is the is the content for an entire three day symposium rather than a podcast. But um, and then j just finally to finish off, because I like to throw in uh, awkward questions right at the end, um, and I know I flagged this this up beforehand, so I don't know if you'd uh, come up with any great ideas. I just what what to your mind do you think is the kind of one big legal issue or kind of handful of big legal issues that you think are going to be facing charities in coming years either ones that already exist but you think are going to become more pressing or things maybe that you've seen in other contexts that you think hang on a minute we should probably start to think about that in the charity world uh i think i think ultimately reputation is going to be the biggest issue for charities um in the in the next few years i think the for more automatic trust that charities got by being being charities i think that that's probably gone always going and i i don't think we're going to go back to that position so i think the real challenge for charities is going to be how do you how do you put your reshape your organization so that it's one that is authentic you know not just on the outside in the marketing material but all the way through the organization and i think that's that's the biggest challenge um, 
for charities and it you know that's obviously not solely a legal thing but there are quite a lot of legal things in it so you know how do you treat people internally um is it the same as the way you would like to be perceived externally now, what do you do with data are you treating your donors data fairly you know if it was your data would you be happy with what you're doing with it um how do you how do you look after your beneficiaries you know when you when you have when you look at safeguarding have you have you got a policy which is great and what is your culture like and is it one you'd be happy to have exposed to the whole world um and i think actually getting to that point where you're not only purpose driven but you're authentic throughout your organization it is actually a huge challenge for any organization but a particular challenge for charities no i i couldn't agree more i think that's that's a uh, a very useful note of caution uh, on which to end um so just just remain to say thanks very much for coming on chris um it's been fascinating chatting to you and as i say hopefully i can twist your arm into coming on again at some point in the future to cover off some of the things we've failed to cover today thanks very much roger it's been a pleasure speaking to you and yeah i'll be very happy to come back and chat some more Okay, well, thanks again to Chris for coming on the podcast. Um, hope you all enjoyed the chat. I thought it was really interesting, um, and you're know, good to kind of touch about on some topics we might maybe haven't covered so much on the podcast um, previously. Um, so, if you enjoyed that and want to check out more of the stuff, the uh, certainly that I've been doing um, on this kind of thing, uh, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Um, and if you've got ideas for things that we could be doing on the podcast in terms of themes and issues or people I could be talking to, uh, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Uh, other than that, as ever, it just remains to say thanks for listening. Uh, tell all your friends about this. Uh, browbeat them into downloading and subscribing to the podcast themselves. And I'll see you next time. Okay, bye.